This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University. And I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, tax museum curator and professor of accounting at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Jeffrey Lamro Hoops. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Scott. How are you doing today? So good. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. Hey, um, what's going on at the tax museum today? Not a whole lot. It's actually I thought I could uh, closed hear construction. today. Cl- or Wednesdays, it's closed. Wednesdays, it's closed. Okay. I thought I could hear construction. Is that happening at the tax museum? Oh, that's the time we're expanding, new, building a new wing. Building a new wing at the tax museum. Okay, good. Will that ex- will that affect the uh, physical footprint of the tax museum? It's going to get much larger. So we acquire. So we uh, we had a main competitor named Fiscal Fossils that we just acquired the whole collection after they went out of business because they just couldn't compete with the tax museum. Okay, it's up to the listener to determine what is true and what is false. Uh, Jeff, what's on tap today? So we have with us Sarah Moshari as a guest. Sarah, do you want to? Um, introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, well, thanks for having me uh, on the podcast today. Uh, my name is Sarah Moshari, and I'm an assistant professor of marketing at the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business. Okay, so then the question becomes, why is a marketing professor on a tax chat? Well, this is the first, right? Because we've had lawyers, we've had economists, we've had practitioners, we've had politicians, but we have not had a Marketers. marketing professor. No, marketing professors. So um, we're here today to talk about the pink tax. And that's why we're talking to a marketing person, because Sarah wrote an amazing paper about the pink tax. So do you want to explain to us what the pink tax is? And then we'll actually talk about whether it's actually a tax or not. Well, first, I'm honored to be the first marketer on the show. Uh, this is a project with uh, two other fellow marketers. Uh, and what we're studying is uh, an alleged empirical regularity, whereby uh, goods and services that are marketed to uh, women are uh, more expensive than comparable goods and services that are marketed to men. So the concern, for example, would be that a company would sell a, a pink colored disposable razor at a higher price than an otherwise identical blue colored disposable razor. Razors always seem to be the example, too. And I'm not sure why that is. I was just thinking, like, if you didn't have an example, I was going to bust in with my example. It also is going to be razors. So again, the so pink tax is pink razor is going to cost more, even though they're the exact same razor. One's just pink. Indeed. That's a concern. Okay. So to be clear to our listeners, this isn't actually a tax. The government has no role in this. The government's not getting any revenue from this. They don't set the price, but it uses the word tax. And for some reason, many times in many different classes I've brought up, uh, it comes up because it's a tax class and people think it's got the word tax. So we're going to talk about it. Um, so they, they want to talk about it. So we're going to talk about it on tax chats. What's interesting is not only is it not a tax, but the, I guess the empirical question is, does it actually exist? So can you tell us a little bit about your paper about pink taxes? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we had heard a bunch uh, about the pink tax in uh, the media, and we learned that policymakers were putting forward proposals to reduce the pink tax. But when we, we sort of uh, actually sort of started to learn more about the topic, we realized that there was sort of a dearth of systematic evidence on these 
price differences. So you could find a bunch of anecdotes where maybe someone had gone to their local drugstore or their local supermarket and snapped a few pictures of price tags. And you can certainly find instances where it looks like the you know pink razor is more expensive than the blue razor. Um, but but these were sort of anecdotes sort of uh, from small samples. So we wanted to go out and really do a sort of systematic analysis to understand how large these price differences were. Um, so that, that was a motivation for the, for the project. Um, but in order to actually figure out what the price differences were for these comparable men's and women's products, uh, we needed three key ingredients. The first one won't surprise you. That's we needed information about the prices that companies were charging. And we focused on uh, uh, consumer packaged goods and in particular on personal care products. That's why I gave the, the razor example, because that's something we actually look at in the paper. There had been some evidence from, say, government reports that that, uh, that the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs put out um, that suggested that there was a sizable pink tax potentially in um, in uh, personal personal care products. So that's where we started looking, and we were fortunate that there's amazing data on the prices that are charged by thousands of retailers all across the United States. That's made made available to, to academic researchers through the Kilt Center for Marketing at the University of Chicago. So we could see these prices being charged for over the course of more than a decade at drugstores, supermarkets, mass merchandisers, et cetera. And it's like it's like item by item prices, right? Exactly. So so this is really the ideal data for for studying uh, this type of of, uh, pink tax or price discrimination more broadly. But we needed two other pieces of, of data that were trickier to come by. And the, the first one was we needed information about gender targeting. So we see, you know, a, a UPC, like a product code, and we, we needed to know, okay, is this a product that's being marketed particularly towards men or particularly towards women? Um, and we had to cobble that together from a few different sources. So, so, so is this like if it says women's razor in the kind of product label or something or something along so, those lines. So a great example of this, and I'll use deodorants also from personal care would be uh, if the brand is Dove Men's Plus Care, then we could infer that, or Lady Speed Stick, that's another one from deodorant. We could infer that there's an intended gender target. I have, I have a personal story. Are you ready? Yes. As a teenager, I wore women's deodorant. Why, Jeff? And the only way I knew is because it said, it's fine for sensitive skin after shaving. <laughs> it wasn't the package wasn't pink it didn't say anything other than that and i i think the modal man does not shave I, I well jeff were you tempted as a teenager to put it on your face no <laughs> after shaving when he said the female deodorant because i guess so i guess my i guess my counter example is that the, the brand nothing in the product description would ever let you know that but i think the people had in mind and that's and i guess that's kind of a challenge you had empirical challenge you have, right? Right. So we we really tried to, to be creative to discern gender targeting. So we looked, for instance, at uh, the Walgreens uh, website, because uh, I think this is true for deodorant, but certainly for some personal care products, they have a uh, for him or for her sort of uh, uh, classifier. So uh, we could actually use the way that they were assorting products to learn about the gender targeting, especially for these examples where maybe the brand name doesn't directly indicate uh, gender. Well, I was always a little bit nervous about using the stuff that was marketed to women because it would say pH balanced for a woman. And I was like, what's it going to do to me as a man if I use that, you know? 
Probably nothing. That's something we're really interested in, actually, is, is understanding, uh, you know, the, maybe in future work, um, how consumers perceive the gender labels. And do they think that there are maybe going to be um, like specific ingredients that are tailored uh, to the gender that, that they need to be mindful of? Yeah, very interesting. Okay, and so I, you also mentioned something. You mentioned this New York uh, study. I think it was from like the municipal government or something. Is that where like is that where this started? Is that where like the pink tax kind of came from? Uh, you know, I don't know if theirs was was the first study, at least not off the top of my head. But they um, uh, did a study, uh, released a study in 2015 where they looked at a bunch of different types of, of products. Uh, including personal care, and uh, the numbers they found were, um, you know, fairly sizable in some categories. And so I think that uh, catalyzed some more attention around the issue. I see. So I was, you guys are bringing up razors. I was going to bring up dry cleaning because not in a tax class I teach, but in a managerial accounting class, we would always talk about dry cleaning. And we said, oh, is this a pink tax? Because if you take a blouse to the dry cleaner, it costs you 10 bucks. But if you take a man's shirt, it costs you five bucks. And it seems like there's discrimination. But then we would use, oh, no, it's not a peak tax. It's, it's, it's a cost-based explanation because a man's shirt is basically a square piece of cotton. And a woman's shirt is some delicate fabric with much more complicated shapes. And so it's harder to like clean and to press and so forth. So it had nothing to do with discrimination. It had to do with costs. Which, which also probably likely brings up another empirical challenge you have in your paper that like making sure the products are, are indeed actually exactly the same is probably really challenging. Right. So there's this language in some of the, these policy proposals about substantial similarity or comparable products. Um, and it's not entirely clear how to operationalize that and how do you figure out if two products really are the same. And so the way we operationalized that was to look at product ingredients. Uh, so for uh, deodorants, for shampoos, soap, et cetera, we actually uh, got data on the active ingredient, if there was an active ingredient, and then uh, the inactive ingredients. And so what we were ultimately doing is constructing comparisons between products that had the same active ingredient and then the same first few inactive ingredients. So maybe that was the first three in some comparisons. We looked at like the first five. Uh, many of these products actually have a very long uh, ingredient list. So if you wanted them to be exactly the same formulation, it would be a very, very, very small comparison set. But even just looking at the first three or first five ingredients could give you a sense. Okay, our, you know, I'm just imagining like coding this in a. That's not. That's not. That's not simple actually. It took a little bit of data cleaning, indeed. Uh, so that was a third ingredient we needed uh, to uh, uh, to try and measure the pink tag. Okay, so now you have price data. You have sort of are the two products comparable and you have, are they marketed differently to men versus women? Right. And so now you have like this huge data set and you can run some comparisons. So what do you find? So the, the sort of first finding was uh, at least for personal care, there is quite a bit of gendering. So a lot of products are gender targeted. Um, and, and so we saw that was fairly um, common. Um, and when we just, sort of do the broader comparison. So we're looking at, at products. But hang on just a minute. You're a marketing person. Isn't that like the oldest trick in the book? Like target your thing to some audience? Uh, it, it can be successful to segment. Uh, it can be profitable, I should say, to segment. 
Uh, so I think uh, we say this in like the intro of the paper. This is a textbook pricing practice that people talk about in all sorts of markets. Um, so, um, you know, maybe maybe we shouldn't be that surprised that we see it showing up here in, in personal care. Although I, I will say it doesn't, if you want to segment the market, it's not clear that gender is the you know most profitable way to segment the market. Right? You could think about other, um, you know, attributes that that you might use or uh, you know other differences in demand across men and women that that might be more profitable we haven't looked into those but it, it wasn't obvious to me that wow you know gender was the, the way to to try and segment but i guess i'm assuming that um finding that there were difference or things that were marketed to males and females was sort of useful for your study but not like that novel of a finding basically we weren't sure whether unisex products would make up a larger share of the of the of the market but you know the first thing is that, that, that we do see a lot of gendering uh, of, the, of these products. Um, and that if you look at the sort of average prices charged for women's products at, uh, and for men's products, we do see that, that women's products are more expensive on average. Well, that, okay, so that's the thing that's going to catch the headlines, right? Like, oh, see, look, women pay more, right? I mean, that's what the newspaper is going to write an article about. Exactly. So, so if, you, if you were sort of... Um, yeah, to, to, to pull out something that was punchy, okay, you said there, there are these price differences, but if you narrow in on the comparisons of those uh, substantially similar products with the same leading ingredients, um, the price differences are much smaller, and we don't see a systematic price premium for women's products. So, so you know, that really sort of flips things. Very much so, right? Because instead of the headline being, oh, there's like, you know, gender discrimination in pricing, it's like, oh, actually, it turns out if you take comparable things, eh, probably not. And what's interesting is it's not, I mean, I, I assume based on the direction that it, that means that retailers are providing fancier things targeted towards women. So it's hard to measure fanciness. At least we don't well, have higher, higher price, <laughs> higher I, price things Yes. in the uh, same category. Right. So, so one of the, one of the things we find, um, is that uh, the formulations that are offered uh, to women versus to, to men actually typically tend to be different. So retailers or, or manufacturers, retailers are price discriminating, but the way they're doing it is they're offering at different kinds of products or products with different ingredients to women at higher prices on average. I, I'm not surprised by that at all because this is just from my life, okay? I, I'm like, my wife will be like, what do you need for, you know, soap? I don't know, soap? Doesn't really matter, but she's got to like smell 25 different soaps and she's got like six bottles of shampoo. And I'm like, I don't know, like head and shoulders, that'd be fine. Like whatever the basic thing is. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to document it systematically like this, but, um, it's sort of intuitive in some ways, I think. So if somebody just asks you, does the pink tax exist? Do you say yes or no? Or are you just like refuse to, to, uh, be so simple and make it complicated? Well, I'm an economist by training. So uh, what I would say is that the pink tax is currently conceptualized, you know, by the policies that we see being discussed and in some instances enacted, that type of pink tax does not exist. But we certainly do see gender-based price discrimination in these markets. It's just a little bit more nuanced. So talk about the policy things that are happening. You, you said like there's some policy responses, and I think I saw this in some municipalities maybe. So t tell us a little bit about that. Exactly. So uh, New York has uh, uh, passed a, a pink tax regulation. Uh, I believe it went to effect in 2020. Um, and I think San Francisco also recently enacted uh, pink tax legislation. So um, 
we haven't had enough time to see sort of what the effect of that would be on the market, um, but it's something that we're definitely interested in. The way the pink tax is characterized in the media is like, oh, the exact same thing costs more for women, but that's not true. The exact same thing costs the exact same, at least in a statistical sense, on average. Um, so does this mean that if a municipality like San Francisco or New York um, enacts um, some kind of pink tax uh, legislation to prohibit it from happening, when it wasn't happening in the first place, that what's really happening is these municipalities are imposing some kind of cost on society that basically makes society worse off than it otherwise would have been? So I, I want to uh, be clear that we can speak to price differences for personal care, but the, these uh, sort of legislative proposals or the legislation that's already passed um, typically are broader in scope and um, would include, for instance, uh, dry cleaning. And we can imagine, or at least I could imagine, that uh, price discrimination might look a little bit different there. Um, you know, personal care, consumer packaged goods more generally, they're sold in these posted price markets like supermarkets and drugstores, et cetera, um, where consumers can go to the store and, and they can see all the different products uh, potentially that are being marketed to different genders. And uh, like Jeff, they can purchase, you know, whatever, you know, product they're interested in. Um, you know, regardless of its gender targeting. So if you thought there was a, a blue version of the product and a pink version of the product and one was much cheaper, a consumer could just buy the lowest price version, sort of arbitrage any price differences. Um, that, that seems like that's much harder to do in a setting where uh, the buyer and seller are interacting face-to-face, -face, maybe where they're negotiating prices. So for instance, there's some work looking at gender-based price discrimination in car repair services. Uh, and so in those markets, the uh, you know, our, our findings might not generalize and there could be a pink tax that might be eliminated or, or reduced by uh, these types of pink tax repeal acts. So why um, why car repairs? Why not just car purchases? It seems like you could get data on that and it's like totally a negotiation. And I, I feel like there's a ton of gender bias in that industry. Like if, if I go to buy a car, it seems like the process is very different than if my wife goes to buy a car. At least in our experience, that has been the case. Uh, there has been, I think, some work also looking at new car sales. The re the repair services was just a, which is another example. Um, and of course, there's a very long literature looking at uh, gender-based discrimination in the labor market as well. So. so you mentioned that this Nielsen scanner data goes back, Nielsen pricing data, I guess, goes back a long ways. Has this changed over time? Uh, so our study mostly focuses on 2015 to 2018. Um, we did that in part because we wanted to overlap with the period um, uh, the, uh, that the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs report studied. Um, but at some point, we were looking back like over a decade to try and construct these, these price series. Um, you know, one thing that's tricky is that when you look back further, like a decade ago, it's harder to get that gender targeting and that ingredient information. Um, so it's possible that, that the price differences have changed over time. Our preliminary analyses... You know, keeping in mind that these data challenges are exacerbated sort of the further back you go. Um, we didn't see any dramatic changes, but. Yeah, Cause I was just looking at Google trends. And like you said, you know, you said something about 2015. If you look at Google trends, their searches for the pink tax really do pick up in 2015. So that does seem to be like a salient event in the, the history of the pink tax. 
And it could be that they were like pink taxing away. They got caught in 2015. And then as of that time, maybe they weren't. But you're saying is, at least from your kind of rough analysis to the extent the data allows you to say that probably not. We don't see a big difference between 2015 and 2018, right? So if you thought the report is released in 2015 and then there's a price change, you, you I think would have expected to see some change even in the four-year time series that we're looking at. Well, it's a very fascinating paper. And I, I love papers like this because... I hate it when the world is driven by anecdotes. I love it when the world is driven by systematic evidence. And this seems like the systematic evidence to cure some misinformation driven by anecdotes. So it's, uh, I think, a welcome study. Thanks so much. We uh, really appreciate it. Appreciate the chance to talk about it with you all. All right. Well, I'm Scott Dyering. This has been another edition of Tax Chats. I'm joined, as always, by Jeff Hoops, professor of accounting at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And our guest today has been Sarah Moshari, professor of marketing at the Haas School of Business, University of California at Berkeley. Thank you for joining us. We'll chat with you next time. Goodbye. Bye. 